Good morning. A thousand years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I remember a particular conversation I had in the basement of Duke Chapel. During that first semester of college, that's when I came to a personal knowledge of Christ as Savior, when I became a Christian. And I was having a conversation that semester with the campus minister for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I can't remember exactly what it was that I said, but we must have been talking about the ministry and power, something along those lines, of the Holy Spirit. Because then I said something to the effect of, I want more of it in my life. And I've always remembered, because Paul Leary said, you know, we Christians don't refer to the Holy Spirit as it. So that may have been my first strong and true theological rebuke. And I've been profoundly shaped by that, a simple moment. But you see how profound it is, the more you think about it. The Christian knows that God is one God in three persons. Three persons, not three aspects of God, where we would refer to the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, as an it. Now, fast forward 20-something years later, and now imagine a moment where, another moment I remember, uh, I was serving as the secretary of one of the committees of our general assembly of our denomination, and at these annual meetings, um, we were doing our work that week, and, and ending one of the sessions, the chairman asked me to close that session in prayer. And so, um, again, I can't quite remember exactly what I prayed, except that I remember I closed that prayer asking God's blessing or blessing on the lunch to come or something by saying, and so we offer these prayers to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And then we all broke for lunch or wherever and another man on the committee who was a longtime pastor and a professor of theology at Reformed Theological Seminary came up to me and he said, Jeff, I, I just appreciate the work you've been doing for our committee this week. That's so great. You know, I want to think a little bit more about the way you close that prayer. I'm not sure that we pray in the name of the Trinity. We're told to pray in the name of Christ. And so I tucked that away. And, of course, he was wrong. I was right, you see. That's, no, no, no. There's something really profound about that beautiful correction he gave me. This mystery of the Trinity is like moving through, uh, in the history of the Christian church, it's like trying to cross this beautiful meadow. But unbeknownst to us, it's really a minefield. And there's dangers at every step in misunderstanding and using human reasoning and going beyond what the scriptures teach to try to get at this mystery of who God is. Our sermon this morning is about the mystery of the blessed Holy Trinity. We'll use the first Peter text as, as our basis, but we'll use it to move into the rest of scripture as best as possible. Let me frame where we're going this morning. I've just thought it's so helpful just to simply, when we start talking about the Trinity, perhaps so that we can avoid some of the mistakes I've made over the years, I found it so helpful just to keep these five points in mind as we sort of conceive of 
making sense of who God is, one God and three persons. And so I highly recommend uh, J.I. Packer's writings on the Trinity, his book, Concise Theology, paraphrasing a good chunk of that now in these next moments. Um, also, Robert Lethem's book on the Holy Trinity is a remarkable tour de force, a recent work. Here's five things to help frame us this morning. And uh, this first one you'll see is a little bit self-serving in light of the two anecdotes I just told you. But G.I. Packer says, This doctrine is perhaps the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It is not easy, but it is true. So that's our first thought this morning, and I I agree with that. I, I can't imagine another aspect of reality that is more difficult to comprehend. The second thing Packer says, he makes the point that as the church has sought to formulate this doctrine of the Holy Trinity, we have needed to, the church has needed to go beyond Scripture in the use of other words, not beyond Scripture in the substance of what Scripture teaches. Let me give you an example. The Scriptures teach that Jesus came from God. And an early uh, heretical movement, the Arians, had no problem affirming that language. Jesus came from God. Because what they meant by that was that he too was created by God as every other creature and has no eternal being. He came from God. And meanwhile, the Orthodox Church said, we also agree that Jesus came from God. However, we believe that the rest of Scripture makes plain that he is eternally self-existing. So therefore, the church used the word begotten, not made. And so Packer is making the second point where he says, The church's historic formulation seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery, not explain it, for that is beyond us. Here's a third framework. Packer makes the point. Here's the basic assertion of the Christian faith with regard to the Trinity. We believe that the unity of the one God is complex and mysterious. The unity of the one God is complex and mysterious. Packer goes on to make a fourth point that we use to frame what we're saying this morning. He makes the point that the the two most obvious ditches that the mind tends to fall into when conceiving of one God in three persons is the ditch on the one hand of modalism, that God exists in different modes. One God who sometimes plays the part of Father, sometimes plays the part of Son, sometimes plays the part of Spirit. One God who exists in three modes. So that's the one ditch that we fall into. Modalism. Denying the threeness of God at the Uh, in in favor of the oneness of God, as it were. One God, but not really three. Playing three parts, but not really three persons. But the other ditch, of course, is upholding the threeness of God at the expense of the oneness of God, and that's the ditch of tritheism, where the Trinity is three different gods merely in one cluster. 
Three gods in a relationship, but not sharing one essence. So those are the ditches. Modalism, one person in three modes, or tritheism, three gods in one cluster. Rather, and here's the fifth framing point, Packer makes the point, this one God, he is also and equally they. And they are always together and always cooperating. Well, it's a beautiful dance to move through this meadow, but it's so easy to step on a landmine and to misunderstand and miscomprehend. Peter now writes to a scattered people. Because the question before us this, is this morning is, and hopefully it's already been answered in your heart in a number of different ways, and we want to look at it, the answer more deeply, but perhaps for some of us it hasn't even been answered in any way yet. And the main question is this, what difference does it make? What difference does this holy mystery of the Trinity make in our lives, in reality? Let's ask him for help now. Let's pray, and we'll be praying in the name of Jesus. Heavenly Father, glorious Jesus, wonderful Holy Spirit, we pray to you now, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, empowered by your Spirit. The whole reason we're even able to pray this morning is because you, Holy Spirit, have applied the work of Christ onto our lives, into our consciences, and made us alive. The whole reason we're able to pray now is because you, Jesus Christ, have cleared the way for us to bring our prayers into the courts of heaven. The whole reason we're able to pray right now is because you, Heavenly Father, have invited us to bring our prayers to you. And so we pray for you to bless this whole world and every aspect of it. And that's this big, huge prayer. But then one very specific prayer right now, that you would bless this sermon for everyone's usefulness, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've seen, hopefully, five helpful framing points as we get into this text. Now, the text is going to offer us a thousand different points of light, but we're going to try to focus on five points from this text this morning. Here's our first proposition. We're trying to answer this question of what difference this all makes. And so here's our first proposition. A deeper understanding a deeper belief in, a deeper trust in the mystery of the Holy Trinity gives us, first of all, encouragement in our trials. Encouragement in our trials. Did you catch the sense of the psalm that was read for us just a few moments ago? And if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, these, these prayers of the church put to music, put to song, you know that well over half of them are expressed in a context of trial, in a context of temptation, in a context of hardship. Or actually, I'm sort of misstating it, 100% of them are stated in a context of trial and temptation. Well over half of them give voice to that struggle. Well over half of them are prayers of lament and despair leading to faith. The Christian life is a context of trial. 
Peter is writing this letter from, in the early years of the Christian church, from Rome, the city where he was eventually, just within a few years of writing this letter, going to be martyred for his faith, going to be killed. But he's writing this letter because he is, he is experiencing the persecution that Nero, the Roman emperor, is bringing upon the church, and he knows that this persecution is going to spread. And it's going to spread to the recipients of this letter. It's going to spread to these regions that he's writing this letter to, which is all, they're all in modern-day Turkey. These regions of Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. Peter knows that this suffering, this persecution for the faith that has been costing him already is going to cost the whole church in increasing measure. And so he writes them this letter, and in this letter he begins it, and he keeps his focus throughout the letter on the beauty and the mystery of the Holy Trinity. He writes this into the context of struggle and trial and temptation. The Christian church in Rome, it's, we don't know exactly when Peter wrote this letter, which year it was. It was in this particular time frame of a few-year window. So we don't know whether he wrote this before, during, or after some of the most horrific of Nero's persecutions. If you're familiar with those early days of the Christian church, you might know about the things that Nero would do to believers. Put them in front of wild beasts to be torn apart. Bring them and, and to, to uh, cover them with wax and then light them on fire as torches for his garden parties. We don't know whether that had begun to happen as Peter is writing this letter or that it, whether it happened shortly thereafter, but what we know had already been happening as you read the book of Acts that Peter himself had already experienced and which the church that he's writing to had already begun to experience is as a result of following Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as the result of claiming faith in this triune God, the Christian, Christian was regularly insulted for his faith, regularly slandered, False accusations were made against the church. Christians were beaten. They were socially ostracized. They were cast out of families, losing their positions, their jobs. And they were also victims of sporadic mob violence, sporadic police actions against them. And so it's in this context that we ask the question, what do we need to hear when our life is in this context of suffering? And the answer, in Peter's letter, is this whole rich letter, but it's focusing the whole time on the mystery of the Trinity. Think of it another way. In Robert Lethem's book, he, he talks about um, getting some wisdom from his fellow professors about this writing of his book about the Trinity. And one theology professor, also from Reformed Theological Seminary, not the one that gave me the helpful correction, but a different one, wrote Robert Lethem and said that he was so excited about this project, this work about the Trinity, and he pointed out, think of it, when Jesus is teaching, he has his last moments with his disciples, and hell is about to be unleashed, not only on him, but upon them. There is a world of hurt about 
about to come to them, and he's got this last evening with them. In his farewell discourse, notice how much of it is about this mystery of the Trinity. If that doesn't show us the essential importance of this doctrine, then perhaps nothing will. And so that's our first point, is that a deeper understanding and belief in and trust in the mystery of the Holy Spirit, it will give us encouragement in our trials. But why is that so? And our final four points are the answer to that question. Why does this mystery give us so much encouragement in our trials? So here's our next point. A deeper understanding and belief in and trust in the mystery of the Holy Trinity gives us a deeper sense of wonder in our salvation. A deeper sense of wonder in our salvation. In Walker Percy's famous book, The Moviegoer, which won the National Book Award, he talks about engaging in the search, which no one else around him seems to be engaged in. And he says to the reader, he says, Dear reader, you will ask me, what do I mean by the search? What are you searching for? God, you ask with an ironic smile. And the, the narrator answers, I, I don't know. As anyone knows, recent polls show us that 98% of Americans say they believe in God. But when this concept of God comes before me, a curtain goes down in my head, and the lights go off. I cannot say whether I am behind 98% of Americans or ahead. I honestly cannot say. And what he's getting at there in the rest of the novel is this way of living the supposedly Christian life where one is fundamentally bored by the concept of God. Where the Christian has lost all sense of wonder and God becomes a generic, vague non-entity. You see, that's impossible if there's any seed of trust and belief in the holy mystery of the Trinity. It's impossible to ever be bored by God. If you see what's being gotten at by this glory of one God and three persons. I don't know if all of you were able to read the, one of the quotes from meditation um, that was in the bulletin from a 4th century theologian Gregory, and this is how he put it. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. And no sooner do I distinguish the three than I am carried back to the one. Luther puts it this way. He says something to the effect of Theology can only be learned by living, yea, by dying and being damned. Theology cannot be learned by mere understanding and comprehension. Theology can only be learned by living, yea, by dying and being damned. In other words, what he's getting at there is, if you don't have a sense of need for God, then the concept of God makes a curtain go down in your head. The moment you know your need for God, 
you are illuminated. The mystery of who this great God is. Again, we saw this wonderful turning point in Psalm 73 that was read for us earlier in the service. This context of despair where the, the enemy, the unbeliever, is the one prospering in this world. And then the, the context changes, though, as the person is praying, as the psalmist is praying, when they enter into the presence of God, into the sanctuary, it says. And so they finally are able to get to this place where they say this profound thing. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. You see, that's, that's the exact polar opposite of what Percy would say, 98% of Americans. God, vague, generic, curtain goes down on my head. The polar opposite is this God, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. The doctrine of the Trinity restores this sense of wonder. This sense of wonder. It's, also, it's always a, a wonderful, enjoyable, and somewhat uh, intimidating thing to be preaching here and to look out the window and see the campus of, of uh, this amazing university. And, um, but, so uh, with some trepidation, I'll make a reference to another university. Are some, are some of you familiar with the, uh, the shield of Harvard University? It's this shield with three books on it, three open books, and the, the motto is Veritas, Truth. And there's, there's some uh, lack of clarity as to when and how and why the change might have happened, but at some point in the early 1800s, the original shield changed to become this shield with three open books. That the original shield, and if you've heard this illustration before, I use it every other talk I give, so you'll... You'll have, you'll have heard it before, but the original shield was two open books and one closed book. Two open books and one closed book. And the best historians have thought that the, the intent there, founded by Puritans, founded by Christian believers, was this quest for truth, that God has given us two open books. The book of general revelation all that can be learned by observing nature, whether macro with a telescope or micro with a microscope, all that can be learned by observing the created universe. And the other open book he's given us is this book, the scriptures, special revelation, that truth is found in these two open books, but there is a third source of truth. And the original intent, many would say, was that the third book closed in the shield was to send the message that the third book is mystery. Open only to God himself. Only the one that has an eternal and infinite mind and comprehension. As God himself says, your ways are not, my ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. There's this third book closed book. When you think of who Jesus is, and in a moment, well, you could, we could consider the other, other two uh, 
parallel questions. When you think, when you conceive of who the Heavenly Father is, when you think, when you conceive of who the Holy Spirit is, but for purposes of time, I'll just ask the one question. When you conceive of who Jesus Christ is, if someone were to ask you, who is Jesus? Would one of the adjectives you use to describe him, hopefully you would say things like he's full of grace and truth, you would talk about his character, his work, his person. Is one of the adjectives you would use to describe him, would you use the adjective, Jesus is incomprehensible? The Holy Spirit is incomprehensible. The Father is incomprehensible. This mystery of the Holy Trinity is incomprehensible. There is a third book, and it's closed. That word incomprehensible is used in the Athanasian Creed. That word incomprehensible is used in our Westminster Confession of Faith. Who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, in his being, wisdom, excellence, etc. But in the, in the confession, it also says he's incomprehensible. What do we mean by that? We're simply getting at this point that the third book is turned over. It's closed. We are by no means denying that, that there's two open books, that he may be comprehended truly, even accurately, truly and genuinely, but he may not be comprehended comprehensively. You cannot turn that book over. You cannot get your arms around Christ himself, let alone the mystery of the Trinity. There is a sense of wonder the more you dig down deep into the beauty of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God and three persons. Study the Athanasian Creed sometime. Go back to these early creeds, the Chalcedonian Creed, and see how they do what Packer says, trying to delineate and circumscribe this doctrine, but not trying to explain it. There is this beauty to living one's life in the midst of suffering with a sense of wonder realizing there's more going on here than I could ever comprehend, and that puts me at peace, even in the midst of hardship. Here is a third point this morning. This deeper understanding and trust in the mystery of the Holy Trinity more firmly establishes and gives us a more accurate self-identity. We get to know ourselves more accurately when we see who we are in the light of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think of it this way. Pascal, the great French philosopher and Christian theologian, he put it, he put it this way. He said, we must not be told that we are like the animals without also being told that we are like the angels. And we must not be told that we are like the angels without also being told that we are like the animals. And we, should, and, and we should not withhold the knowledge of both, but rather we must teach both. There is something glorious and there's something fallen about who we are as human beings. And we know this because in the light of the Trinity, it all begins to make sense. For example, notice how Peter addresses us here in this letter. He says, he addresses us as the elect exiles of the dispersion. The elect 
exiles. Elect. That means chosen. Made special. A special affection placed upon. And at the same time, exiles set to wandering in this world. This world is not our home. Pilgrims, aliens, outcasts. And paraphrasing Pascal, perhaps, we would say, it is not helpful for the Christian to conceive of himself as elect without also conceiving of himself as an exile. And it's not helpful to conceive of ourselves as exiles without also conceiving of ourselves as elect. And it's not helpful to be ignorant of both, but rather we are to be mindful of this true self-identity found in the Father's foreknowledge, in the Holy Spirit setting us apart and sanctifying us, in Jesus Christ sprinkling us with his blood and being the one after whom we follow and obey. You may know yourself more deeply and more accurately when you receive and listen to what each person of the Trinity believes about you and conceives you to be. Again, notice this text. Verse 2 according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You have a Father in heaven who has known you forever, even before you were conceived in your mother's womb. Your Father in heaven has known you, and known you in such a way because the Scriptures, when it uses that phrase, and especially in the New Testament, is not talking about mere awareness of reality. God was aware that you would one day be born. But it also is a plain implication of affection. Affection and love and compassion. This God has known you and loved you from all eternity. Does that help your self-identity? Maybe in the tiniest of ways? Of course. That changes everything. And now look at the next thing according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. There's no doubt, especially in the book of Romans, that the Holy Spirit is the one who is sanctifying us in the sense of making us more and more holy, more and more like Christ. And that may be part of the implication in this particular verse, but I think that what's in the foreground is this other idea of sanctification, which is just simply this idea of setting you apart as different, as other, as special. This gets back to this whole idea of being elect. Does it make any difference to you in your own self-identity to be aware of this reality that the Holy Spirit has set you apart that there's this whole mass of humanity. And there, by the way, there's no question that he is setting apart a number that this, we can never even conceive of, more than the stars in the heavens. But what if he just left you unset apart? That the only way the Holy Spirit conceives of you is just one of many, just one trivial member of this billions and billions human beings who've ever lived or whoever will live. And you're just, you're just one of a billion, one of 12 billion, one of 100 billion. And that's the only way. No. There's this set a 
apartness. You've been sanctified. You have a special role in this universe. This is your self-identity. And then we see the third thing. For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Some of you know our, our, our daughter's a, a, a dancer. And in, in, uh, in dance classes, it's the same with athletes. It's the same with musicians. But it, it takes a little bit of understanding, especially if you're a child, to realize that if in this uh, acting out, living out of, of your art or whatever, the teacher singles you out for correction, that that's actually a wonderful thing. You want that. You don't be the, want to be the one that got through a whole class having been kept anonymous because you never made any mistakes. Rather, you want to have the eye of the instructor because that instructor is then showing obedience to them is of value to them. They see something in you that's promising. Would it be helpful for your self-identity to conceive of a Jesus who says, I look at you and whether you obey me or disobey me, it doesn't matter to me. I, I'm, 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 I'm apathetic. Do what you want to do. Would that help you in your self-identity? Or wouldn't you rather know that Jesus is saying, I see you and I call you to obey me. You are the one I want obeying me. And of course, he set us free, hasn't he? Because this other thing here is sprinkling with his blood. That's a, that's a thousand sermons in itself, just this, this, this idea of what's, what's being gotten at there by the sprinkling of his blood. But three, three big themes that we see. It means that if he has sprinkled you with his blood, he is giving you his righteousness. He's imputing it to you. You are now counted righteous in the blood of Christ. A second aspect is, by sprinkling you with his blood, he is marking you and sealing you for all the privileges of the new covenant. And a third aspect is, by sprinkling you, he is setting you apart for service. He is consecrating you as a priest in this world. Does this help your self-identity? Does this stabilize and more firmly establish your self-identity to see how the mystery of the Holy Trinity and what each person of the Trinity believes about you and how the three persons are working together as one God to bring about your salvation, how all that applies to you. Not quite a thousand years ago, but maybe half a thousand years ago, I, during my early years in the Navy, my ship was um, deployed uh, and we went through the Suez Canal and then we're deployed to go south to Kenya. And in doing that, we crossed the equator. And anybody who's been in the Navy or knows about these traditions, I was once a polywog, and now I am a shellback. Do you, do you know about this? Do you know about the tradition crossing the, the equator where everybody who has is, who is already crossed the equator at one time, they are a shellback, and they will initiate all the polywogs. And they love to initiate. And it's things like a big chute that you have to crawl through filled with a week's worth of garbage. 
It's things like having motor oil rubbed into your hair. It's things like having to jump up and down in just your underwear and be sprayed with a fire hose. It's all these rituals that last a whole half a day. And then there's a great feast at the end. You're no longer a polywog. You're a shellback. Set apart. You're now no longer this little localized parochial person, but now you're a man of the world. You've crossed the equator. The whole world is yours now. You're a traveler. I don't remember my baptism. I was an infant. But I tell you, something a billion times more significant happened then. A billion times, a trillion, quadrillion, zillion times more significant. Set apart. The Father's foreknowledge. If you've been baptized, you see that's what was happening. If you haven't been, you can be. Just come to faith in Jesus and we'll baptize you. The Father's foreknowledge. He's known you forever. The Holy Spirit setting you apart. No longer a polywalk. Blending into the mass of humanity, but now set apart. And given this special task. Set free by Jesus to obey him in this world. That leads to our fourth thing. This deeper understanding and trust in the mystery of the Holy Trinity. That actually leads us... to a more ethical and pure integrity and perseverance. This is what's being gotten at by obedience to Jesus Christ. What does it look like to obey Jesus? What it might look like in a particular moment sometimes takes great wisdom and discernment where you need the help of the Holy Spirit because, like, for example, we know in the book of Proverbs, there's these two Proverbs back-to-back, One says, answer a fool according to his folly. The next says, answer not a fool according to his folly. So sometimes it's wise to speak truth. Sometimes it's wise just to hold your tongue. So how to actually apply the wisdom of God takes an ongoing personal relationship with the Holy Spirit to get for him, asking for his wisdom. That being said, thankfully, the boundaries of what it looks like to glorify God are not in that third uncovered book. They're wide open. We know what the ethical life looks like in the scriptures. We know what it looks like in the rest of this passage. Notice how he goes on in chapter 2. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and all envy and all slander. Long for the pure spiritual milk. We know what the ethical life looks like. Study the scriptures. Study that third book. Excuse me, the, the, the second opened up book. The scriptures themselves. Study the first book, what, what common sense would say, what, what just being a generally wise human being, there's all sorts of wisdom in that first book of general revelation about how to live an ethical life. But that second book, the scriptures, gives specifics and details. There's no mystery. Obedience to Jesus, it looks like this. It looks like 1 Peter 1 and 2. Now, what would obedience look like if you have a generic understanding of God where the concept of God makes a curtain go down in your head? There's, there's no rich mystery of the Trinity, but rather it's just this sort of vague, formless God. For example, without a rich conception of the Father, I think the default mode of the human heart is that God is like Santa Claus. 
Or maybe he's the man upstairs. What does obedience actually look like to Santa Claus, to the man upstairs? How empowered and motivated are you to obey Santa Claus? Maybe on starting December 21st for this four-day window you might be, but how motivated are you to obey a vague and generic God? I'm not. That makes a curtain go down in my head. But when you conceive of the Heavenly Father and all he means to us, same way with, with Jesus. If you conceive of Jesus as a mere prophet or as a mere religious leader, or as a mere example, how motivated are you to go to the cross the way he did? The default mode when you don't have a clear conception of the second person of the Trinity as your mediator, the one between God and man, the default mode is you just have some other mediator. You yourself become the mediator, or your good works become the mediator, or something else will somehow bridge the gap between you and God. How motivated are you to actually live this ethical life by some sort of constructed mediator, obedience to some constructed mediator? I'm not. I doubt you are. Similarly, if you've got this vague understanding, I don't know, I heard the story of this, this really foolish college freshman who referred to the Holy Spirit as an it. I can't, can't believe that. can't believe anybody would do that. But uh, how motivated are you to follow an it? How motivated are you to follow the force? That's the default mode. When you don't have a clear conception of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, it's probably the force. Well, great, but how does that make you an ethical person to do courageous things in the midst of darkness. It doesn't for me. Christ, you see, is the one we obey. Obedience is to Christ. We know, of course, we are obeying the Father. We're obeying the Holy Spirit. There's no doubt about that. The rest of scriptures make that plain as well. And yet Jesus, obeying him, is at the forefront here. And why is that? Because he's the one that entered into our life. He's the one that entered into this world. He's the one that showed us the way. Just think of this whole idea of trailblazing, not merely as a metaphor, but as an actual thing. If you're walking through a thick forest where there no trail has been blazed for you, it can be overwhelming. Do you ever watch any of these like man versus wild shows? And like you can't even walk ten feet through some thickets and forests. Is there any aspect of obedience that Christ is asking you to walk in? where it's not a walk of following him. Following him. He who has already trailblazed. No, there's no aspect of obedience that he ever calls us to that he himself has not already trailblazed. Obedience is to Christ, this great Savior. And remember what he says about taking his yoke upon us. He says, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. I'm not a taskmaster. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. I do not impose this yoke upon you, this, this burden of a harness where it's just you and he's behind you driving you, but rather it's this yoke, two animals yoked together. And we all know if one of the animals is stronger and knows the way, he carries the weight. And the other animal just has to keep in step. This is obedience to Jesus Christ. This is a joyful way of living the Christian life. 
And here's the final point. Peter has given us this passage. Jesus Christ himself speaks in the upper room discourse. These truths about the Holy Trinity in a context of suffering. Because he wants to encourage us in our pilgrimage. Encourage us in our trials. And he does so by the ways we've been seeing in this passage. He does so by giving us a deeper sense of the wonder of our salvation, a more firmly established and accurate self-identity, a more pure and ethical integrity and perseverance, and now finally, a deeper enjoyment of himself, a deeper enjoyment of God himself. These first two verses, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, and then he just launches into doxology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, J.A. Packer says, all theology, all true theology is doxology. If there's any truth that you're coming to understand about God that doesn't cause you to praise him and enjoy him more deeply, there's something wrong in that formula. Either what you're understanding is not a true thing, but a made-up thing, or there's some hardness of heart to truly receive it into the conscience. Because every truth about God leads us to enjoy him, leads us to doxology. That's that's how grace and peace are multiplied. That's how it says in verse 8 that we now express this joy inexpressibly. This true God who can be comprehended is yet incomprehensible. This joy which we can express and do express in worship is yet inexpressible. Here's how we wrap it up. The other quote that we used for meditation prior to the service. This comes from Jeremiah Burroughs who wrote in the midst of great suffering himself in the 17th century. And it's in the bulletin. And just, just listen to what he says here. This sums up, hopefully, all we've been trying to say this morning and what this first Peter text is getting at. God is the only source of real happiness. He doesn't need anything or anyone to make him happy. Even before he made the world, the three persons of the Trinity were completely happy with each other. What God does for Christians is to make them as happy as he is. This is necessary because they are not good enough or strong enough to make themselves happy. God gives them everything they need. As John wrote, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. This morning, we're always transitioning now to the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, we are once again going to receive the fullness of his grace another blessing, another experience of this blessing that comes to us from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.